Sound Pages is a literary series featuring resident artists in the Jack Straw Writers Program. Then my mother looked at me and spoke a name for the first time. Maureen, she said. It's your sister, Maureen. This program features the work of 2016 writer Carolyn Wright. Curator Karen Finneyfrock sat down with her in the studio. Your project for Jack Straw is a book of poems. Tell me about it. Well, I think I'm going to call it Mother of Pearl Women. And it will include a lot of poems having starting with childhood origins and then working into all of these connections with other women. Poems having to do with my late mother, my late sister, and any number of other significant women in my life. How did you come to writing about girls and women? Well, I are one. (laughs) I found myself really interested in the work of women and in women because in many of the places in the world where I've traveled— Women are, of course, regarded with great certainty and conviction to be second-class citizens. And it doesn't matter what socioeconomic class, what the skin color of the males happens to be, the males still predominate. So women all across the socioeconomic spectrum tend to be second-class citizens. Well, I arrived in Latin America as a gringa, right, a person of more or less European heritage in a country where, in Chile especially, where I was living and where I was learning Spanish and I became extremely fluent, which was good. And because I was fluent, I could really have meaningful conversations with people. And it was very interesting to observe the kinds of resentments that the middle-class and upper-middle-class women felt about their position, their situation. And then later on, talking to, you know, campesina women, rural women, women in mining towns and in fishing villages and everywhere I went, I could have reasonable conversations with women, and women would open up to me in a way that they, you know, who knows what, how they opened up to the men. So I just found myself really interested in the stories of women and the lives that women lead. And then when I went to India and Bangladesh, when I was in in West Bengal in Calcutta, and then later in Bangladesh, where I was translating the work of Bengali women poets and writers, well, there, the separation between the genders is even more pronounced. I mean, it's all codified, especially in largely Muslim Bangladesh. So I determined, well, I was going to translate the work of women because just as in Latin America and in this country, literary work by men has received almost all the attention in those countries. And so the work of women was something that I wanted to learn about. What do women write? What are women working on? And so I was, I guess, probably the first person to translate, to go in and really focus on the work of women to be translated from Bengali to English. You have written about Elizabeth Bishop, and I believe that you consider her something of a mentor. Could you tell me about when you met her? Well, I was uh, at the University of Washington. I had returned from Chile 
and Brazil, where I was on a Fulbright Hayes study grant. And I'd done a couple of different graduate school applications, but the first one I accepted was the teaching assistantship to do a master's degree in Romance languages at the University of Washington. Well, all those, I was teaching Spanish 101 and I was taking classes in Spanish, various aspects of, you know, literature in Spanish. And then, uh, but I was also, because they were housed in the same building, Padelford Hall, uh, I would always trot down to the English department at the other end of the hall and I was noticing, you know, about creative writing because I also had applied for creative writing degrees at other schools. And I saw an announcement that Elizabeth Bishop would be teaching a workshop in that spring quarter. Well, I made it my business to be in that class. And that's how I met her. And uh, it was amazing. Uh, I actually didn't realize that she had been in Brazil at that point. I just got a copy of her collected poems as it was at the time. And I was reading through it. And um, I was just sort of amazed by her. And the thing that amazed me about her was that she said things like, I don't think, you know, most people really are not going to become poets. But if you really want to become a poet, you've got to write. You've got to read and you've got to write. And you've got to read all the classics. You've got to read all of the the romantics and the Renaissance poets and the metaphysical poets and modernist poets, and you've got to practice writing in form. So that's what we did. We wrote in form. We wrote ballad quatrains. We wrote sestinas. We wrote, I think I even tried a villanelle. Ah, I do remember a particularly egregious ballad I wrote. (laughs) The ballad of some kind of crazy jail. Anyway, that was the gift that kept on giving from her because most of the time, most of my later courses in creative writing in, at the graduate level were you didn't really learn anything. You basically, the professor would say, okay, bring in a poem next week, whatever, just bring in whatever. You know, you're in this graduate program, so you teach yourselves, you, you do whatever, bring it in, and you all talk about it among yourselves. And the professor said almost nothing. I mean, mainly what we wrote was the sort of default genre at that point, which was... Uh, free verse, which meant whatever. And yet, because I had worked with Elizabeth Bishop, and because I had this sense that writing in form could teach me things about poetic prosody that I would not learn just from writing whatever in lines of whatever length and words of whatever order, that really helped me to practice the kinds of craft that artists in other genres get. For example, Painters will go to museums and copy great master paintings. They will also have drafting classes where they are practicing drawing from life. They will practice drawing skeletons. They'll practice drawing hands. And you get the whole structure of the human form before you start doing something abstract, right? So that's what I got from Elizabeth Bishop, and it has continued to be important to me up until now. You've written a stunning number of books, 14 books of poetry, Something like that. It depends upon how you categorize them, you know. Are there themes you return to or obsessions you revisit over your books? 
I think that my main interest is relationships with people and the relationships between the speaker of the poem, who's sometimes, you know, more or less greater to or equal than myself, as we used to say in math class, or it can also be relationships of third persons to each other. In a way, poems, especially my poems, are both lyrical and narrative, so they tend to tell stories. And so I think the interactions and the kind of complex but very revealing insights, the, the, the emotional dynamics, the, even the political tensions between individuals, and also the way that interactions between individuals can illuminate larger issues within a society, within a culture. So I think that's what interests me more than anything else. And also, as a poet who has spent a lot of time interacting with other cultures. I'm always trying to understand those cultures on their own terms as an individual. So interacting with people of those cultures becomes a topic of a good deal of the poetry. Now we'll hear a selection from Carolyn's live reading. Uh, I'm going to read the three poems in the anthology, and then depending upon how the time goes, uh, I might read one or two more that I have here. Um, these are from a sequence called Mother of Pearl Women, and this is the sequence I call the Mute Sister sequence because, well, the Mother of Pearl Women sequence focuses on women and girls in my life, um, women I've known from all over the world, in Chile, in Brazil, in uh, India, specifically in Kolkata, West Bengal, and also in Bangladesh, but people I've met elsewhere as well. And then key among them for the earliest years were my mother and my late sister Maureen, who was profoundly disabled by birth trauma, and my parents took her to live at the Rainier State School uh, when she was four years old and my mother was expecting me. Um, she received, Maureen received excellent care until she uh, passed away in November of 1999. But I had become her legal guardian at, upon the death of my parents. My mother, this was, this birth of my sister was the great tragedy in my parents' marriage. And I'm actually writing a lot of, I'm going to write a lot more about this, but these are three of the poems in the sequence. And the first one is called Rainier State School, it's an acrostic, and the words that it spells out, Buckley, Washington, or Buckley Wash, which is where the Rainier State School is. Before I was born, my overburdened parents made their unhappy choice to relinquish you, a flailing four-year-old, to the state's care. Child whose brain almost failed at birth, Hypoxia's blunt force, you kept growing. My tiny mother, weakened by grief, expecting me, gave up, leaving you just after Christmas with kindly specialists. My parents drove away. Even the decades-long silence about you in which I grew up 
was shadowed by your presence, your absence. Sister, I never knew. It's time now. You're still alive here with me. The second poem is called Visit to the State School. And this was actually my only memory that I had of her until I was 23. Mommy, I whisper, she won't talk to me. I tug at my mother's skirt. Why won't she talk to me? I am four. My mother crouches next to me, so she's at my eye level. Smell of perfume and cigarette smoke in her hair. Not far away, the tall girl with curly, dark gold hair whom the ladies in white dresses brought and stood before me. This is your sister, they said, and left her there in front of me. My sister shook her curly head and stood there. I didn't know I had a sister. What's your name? I asked. Do you want to play? But my sister just stood there, rolling her eyes, rolling her curly head from one shoulder to the other, till I got scared and ran back to my mother, who stood smoking and talking with the ladies in white dresses. Mommy, she won't talk to me. I tug at my mother's skirt. Why won't she talk to me? My mother crouches beside me, perfume and cigarette smoke in her dark gold hair and a hollow look in her face. I don't yet know the word stricken. You see, dear, my mother puts her arm around me. She can't talk. She can't talk? I ask. She's not able to talk. Oh, how strange, I think, as the ladies in white dresses lead away the girl they've called my sister. My mother stands up and takes my hand. Together we gaze into the vast day room full of blurred, wobbly children making vague, word-like sounds and playing in slow motion so much like, unlike, the children in the playroom for shoppers' children at the Bon Marche downtown. She can't talk, and I can't know. It will be years before my mother mentions my sister again. So this is that mention of my sister. After a year in Chile, I turned 23 and flew home, a sympathetic stranger in my parents' eyes. How did I know? They each drew me aside privately to complain about the other. <laughs> my father took me on errands in the car, leaned his forehead on the steering wheel in the QFC parking lot, and wept about my mother. What did I do wrong? In the front seat, I sat frozen in August's dogged swelter, skin prickled with pity and shame. 
What could I do to fix the broken doll of his marriage? Next day, my mother slipped into my room, closed the door, and began to list my father's faults. The bottles clinking in his basement stash, his weekend afternoons of witty brilliance on front lawns across the street to impress the neighbors, evenings dissolved after he staggered muttering home and stomped downstairs. My mother and I sat on my bed in my suddenly grown-up childhood room. Why don't you leave him and go home? I asked. You were happy then in childhood, weren't you, with Grandma and your sisters? My mother perched on the bed's end, fiddling with her unlit cigarette. Just go, I pressed her. Daddy can take care of himself. My mother looked away. You see, dear, I can't go. There's someone else, someone I can't abandon. What? I thought, my mother with another man? My mother, who almost never left the house, who hadn't telephoned anyone in years except her sisters? I glanced at packing boxes stacked in the corner. My last doll left from childhood sprawled on top, her red and white checked dress frayed and grubby, one foot shoeless and flopped at an odd angle her once blinking blue eyes fixed, staring at the scumbled 1950s ceiling. Then my mother looked at me and spoke a name for the first time. Maureen, she said. It's your sister, Maureen. So I'm going to switch tone now, now for something slightly different. Um, uh, this is a poem, it's called a guzzal, early teens. So now I'm a little older, but uh, this poem, as you'll see, the guzzal form has repetition, a uh, refrain that repeats at the end of uh, the first two lines in the first couplet and then the second line of each subsequent couplet. And it sort of tracks uh, those horrible, horrible ages, 13, 14, and 15, it began to get better, right? <laughs> what? What? Oh, well, it was, it was, what was horrible about it was what I felt like inside. I mean, I look at kids that age and I go, oh man, I, I think I know what you're going through. <laughs> ah, the hormones all in a, in a fury, you know, uh, not the perfect storm. Um, but anyway, this was sort of, and then, of course, there was the life beyond the neighborhood, the life out there in, in, in the news and on television and radio, etc., that I began to become aware of and interested in. So I think you'll get much of it. Um, and it also carbon dates me, right? <laughs> Guzzal, early teens. The Kennedys in Camelot. And I? plump and pimpled at 13. Dr. Gothenquist tightened my braces at 13. Little Caroline rode her pony on the White House lawn. I stared at her in life, short and horseless at 13. Marilyn's face multiplied on Warhol's silken screens. In mirrors, my face pout-smiled at hers at 13. Jackie's gowns glittered in White House drawing rooms. 
In school halls, I folded arms across new breasts at 13. Happy birthday, Mr. President. Marilyn cooed her siren song. She flared out our barbiturate flame, and I was still 13. November's muffled drums, the black horse riderless, John John saluted the caisson. I wept by the black and white TV, hair in pink foam rollers at 14. The Fab Four, they shook their mop tops on Ed Sullivan. Four Eyes walked head down, shielding her glasses at 14. Jean Shrimpton, supermodel, posed on covers of Cosmopolitan. I took a class in poise and posture and shortened my dresses at 14. Jackie in mourning with the children, a Greek yacht's seclusion. With my friend Gigi, I took church hall cha-cha lessons at 14. The Beatles in Seattle rocking the sold-out Coliseum. In a sea of screams, I grinned, free of braces, at 14. Bell-voiced Baez, black veil of hair, folk music's queen. I wore empire waist dresses, hair to my shoulders at 15. Dylan and Baez, her Egyptian ring sparkled, he was traveling on. I teetered on scales, demanding contact lenses at 15. First week of high school, I swept into the girls' room, slender, a swirl of hair, the drama club's princess at 15. Carolyn, you've changed, gasped popular Darlene, fear in her voice. She looked at me with new eyes at 15. Thank you. Thank you very much. Sound Pages is a Jack Straw production. The 2016 curator of this program is Karen Finneyfrock. This episode of Sound Pages was produced by Daniel Gunther and Levi Fuller. Recording engineers are Steve DeTori, Daniel Gunther, Mo Preventure, and Tom Stiles. Narrator is Alyssa Keene, and executive director of Jack Straw Cultural Center is Joan Rabinowitz. Theme music by the Seattle Jazz Composers Ensemble, produced through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the City of Seattle Office of Arts and Culture, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, Arts Fund, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.